do we view our lives as an opportunity to show others not just love, not just compassion, not just pardon, but extravagant forgiveness, extravagant compassion. Because what type of love have we been shown from the Father in common grace and through the precious blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us to take onto himself the weight and the cost of all of our evil sins? This is an extravagant love. This is an extravagant compassion. God does not have a little compassion for man. Therefore, the charge to us is not to have a little, but extravagant compassion. Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. God's love is so good and so magnificent. God's love is so large and so encompassing. It's enveloping, if that's a word. That God surrounds us with his love. He encompasses us in his love. He holds us fast in his love. His love is so great for his children. Let's pray. O wondrous God of love, the God who knows us completely, the God who defines what love is and how love is and how it is to be shown and how it is to act and to move and to breathe and to speak and to be written. God, you define it. You define mercy. You define grace. You define forgiveness. You define compassion. You define love. You define mercy. You are the one who has given us all things, and you, God, have given us these things. And these things testify to who you are, and they testify to your love for us and your love for this world. And God, may we look to you for the definition of these things. 
and not to the world. Lead us and guide us by the power that is in your name and by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open with me now to Genesis chapter 21, starting at verse 8. Let's back up just a few verses to verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Of course, you folks will remember a few chapters back, this was not the beginning or the introduction of Hagar the Egyptian. She was given to her master, as you would, Sarah, previously Sarai. And she served Sarai. And when Sarai becomes Sarah, could not have a child yet, even though God had promised them descendants, God had promised them, Abraham and Sarah, that they would have descendants, and God believes in marriage. Therefore, God was going to do something, though it may be miraculous, miraculous, because God had promised that there would be descendants. And not just descendants. God promised Abraham he would be a father of a multitude of nations. And he said to him and to Sarah specifically that kings of peoples would come from their union in their line. 
And about midway of the 25-year waiting period, what it turned out to be, about 12 years or so in, Sarah suggests, well, maybe Abraham should sleep with Hagar, my servant. And perhaps there would be a child from that union. Perhaps that is the way that I would get a child, even though that would not be God's ordained plan. And God is the one who is in charge of life and death, and therefore he did bless Hagar to be pregnant and give birth to a son. His name would be Ishmael. But he would not be of the chosen line of the people of faith, the people of God. What we see is that God still has a blessing for Hagar. God still has a blessing for Hagar's line, for her union with Abraham, that would produce Ishmael and then produce a nation after him. This was promised. And God says it again in today's text. And perhaps that's how Abraham had consolation that he could send her away. Because God said that he would make him also into a nation. But the sinful act of what they did had powerful repercussions, negative repercussions into their family for a very long time. 16 years. 16 years possibly straight of jealousy. This started back at the time that Hagar slept with Abraham. And then we see it again in today's text. You know, what's interesting is actually what Sarah said in verse 6, back up to verse 6, she said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. It almost, it kind of came true, at least of Ishmael, because we read today in verse 9, that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, that's probably neither here nor there, but what we can strongly infer from this right here with laughing is it's a different category than what you and I would say to be laughter. This was more, well, definitely was, mocking. That seems jealousy ran rampant in their household. Let's back up to chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Back when she was named Sarai, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai in sin. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her, her mistress. Excuse me. So when Hagar, the Egyptian servant, had conceived, she looked with contempt on Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you! Exclamation point. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. It's a huge tangled web of sin. Jealousy is sin, anger is sin, contempt is sin, and definitely adultery is sin. When the Bible says here that in the language of Sarah that she took Hagar and gave her to Abram as a wife, which would be a second wife, which would be polygamy, I do not believe that that was ever under God's biblical law. That even though Sarah may have given her to Abram and designated her as such does not mean that it was right in the eyes of God. Therefore, it's not okay that Abram slept with Hagar. Because I believe that it has always been, the marriage has always been one man and one woman. God's design, Genesis chapter 2. But then we look at today's text. So that was chapter 16, and let's look at today's text again. Starting at verse 10. So Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She won't even say her name. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. God uses the same language. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Interesting. It was always to be through Isaac. Ever since God promised 25 years before Isaac was born, and we talked about Isaac's birth last week, God always knew it would be through Isaac. One, because God chooses. Two, because God came to Abraham, made a covenant with Abraham. He would be the father of a multitude of nations. That means you're going to have descendants. You will have descendants. And your descendants will have descendants. And it will continue into a very large number. And this is because God is continuing on his family line. God is continuing on the line of the people of faith in God. God calls Abraham out from a pagan world, calls him into relationship with himself, and now says, from you will be a line of faith. And I am the one who's going to do this. Trust me. Trust me. Wait on me and trust me. I am the one who's going to to do this. And we see Sarah being jealous of Hagar. We see Hagar mocking Sarah. Back then, and practically now, in the way that Ishmael is acting, and we can infer. So again, Sarah says, send her away. And God says, I'm going to take care of them, Abraham. Do as she says. Verse 15. 
When the water in the skin was gone, Hagar put the child under one of the bushes in the wilderness. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. We see here that Hagar is also having a hard time with trust. Because God had a conversation with Hagar back in chapter 16 also. Let's go back and look at this. Flip back to chapter 16, starting at verse 7. So Sarai had dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar had fled from Sarai. Then verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Excuse me, he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Stop there, verse 13. So God had already had, years prior, this conversation with Hagar. You will have a son. His name shall be Ishmael. What's that, about 13 years prior? Because Ishmael is about 13 years old at the time of Isaac's birth. Before, 13, 14 years. Did she forget that God said this? Did she forget that God said, not just that she would have a son, but I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude? Verse 10 from chapter 16. It's not completely unlike the conversation and the promise that God kept affirming to Abraham and Sarah about Isaac. You will have a son. You will have a son. God had this great compassion on Hagar and on Ishmael. And it's possible because she was but a servant in their household, that Abraham and Sarah were the masters, and that she was the servant, and that she was spoken to, that she, would, that she was proposed to by Sarah, that, the, that she would sleep with Abraham, but that she was also subservient in their household. She was not the person of power in the household compared to the two of them, as she was given to be just Sarah's servant. So therefore, she was also a servant of Abraham. And somehow in all of God's mystery, before in chapter 16, he promises to make Ishmael into a great nation. And then in today's text, he reaffirms to Hagar the same promise. That out of mystery, 
He's not going to be of the chosen line, but I'm still going to bless him because I have this special relationship with Abraham because I'm choosing to do this because I'm choosing to bless even something that was born out of sin. Even something that went around the plan of God, the, the preferred the plan, the holy plan set before. I say that because, see, God always seems to have a, not a contingency, to have a rescue plan for what man brings about by way of sin. But God plans for his people. God wants for his people. God desires for his people and for us today, holiness. He desires that our desire, because God is holy, and therefore the Bible says that God calls us to be holy. Be holy because I am holy, God says. Therefore, be holy in what? In part? In this or in that? No. In all that you do, be set apart in righteousness, in faith, in trust, in love toward God. God deals in love, God deals in grace, God deals in mercy, God deals in forgiveness, God deals in compassion, God deals in kindness to those who are not worthy of any of this. God deals in kindness still. God deals in compassion still. God deals in patience. God is so patient still. God has this incredible compassion for Hagar and for Ishmael. Again, they're not of the line. They're not even of the line. And God still looks down and speaks with kindness to her. She sees the boy. It talks about the boy being put under a bush. And she's a bowshot distance away. The boy, Ishmael, at this time, it's not a little boy that the... the the narrative kind of would make you, it would bring thoughts of a small child. No, Ishmael was, what, 14 years old at this point? About? He is an adolescent, but a, what we would call today, a teenager. He's of pretty good size. And even though she's sent off into the wilderness, even though she's sent off into the desolate places with a skin of water. God's going to provide for them because God made a promise to them. Because God has compassion on them. We don't even specifically know that Hagar had faith in God. We know she had encounters with God. We know she had conversations with God. We know that God made a promise to her and about Ishmael. But we don't specifically know that she had a personal saving relationship with God. And still, God shows compassion. This is an extraordinary compassion. This is an extravagant compassion. It's not ordinary in the eyes of the world. The eyes of the world would have a conditional compassion. Yes, I will care for others. Yes, I will care about the less and the needy when it's convenient for me. 
or maybe around Christmas time, when I can drop a few coins in the bucket, feel good about myself, it looks good in the eyes of others, now I'm going to move on. Thank you very much. That's compassion in the eyes of the world. When laws are changing all the time, when morality is changing all the time in the world, when that which is good and has been good for centuries is now seen as evil, and that which is evil and violent and disgusting is now approved of as law, or at least as that which culture should be doing and acting in? No. That is not compassion. That is not respect. That is not humility before God. That is not love for your fellow man whatsoever. That is very limited. That is skewed. That is distorted. And God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And my patience and my love for man is intense. God is extremely patient with mankind. And aren't we glad that he is? Because none of us are deserving of his kindness. None of us are deserving of his love. None of us are deserving of life. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And unless we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, relying on his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, for us, we will not have life with God. That's a mandatory requirement. We must put our hope and our faith and our trust in Christ alone. God also has incredible compassion on Abraham and Sarah. Despite their sin, despite their faults, despite their stressful relationship, despite how they've treated Hagar, they used her and then she was mad at, and then Sarah was mad at her. Hagar was, sat, was mad at Sarah. Sarah was mad at Hagar. Abraham was involved in the whole situation. Then he either had two wives or he had a wife and then an adulteress. However, that is labeled. It's still not a holy monogamous marriage and household like God designed. And therefore, it's a big mess. But God, but God has compassion, but God has love, but God has patience, but God says, we are still in relationship, Abraham. I still have a plan for you. This promise for you and for Isaac and for his family, for his descendants, this is for all of you and this relationship is all about God's glory. And you will be loved and you will be encouraged and you will be taken care of because we are in a relationship. So see, it's not just one-sided, but the weight and the glory and the worship is due unto God. And we function best 
when our eyes are turned toward him and we are giving God glory. God also has an incredible compassion for us. God's compassion is not limited. His sight is not limited. His hearing is not limited. His mercy is not limited. The one who sent his own son to earth as a humble human baby in a manger in a small town to a poor mother and father. God came humbly to earth and then lived as a man for 33 years, day by day on this earth, among sinners who were not bowing down and worshiping him and giving him the glory he deserved. God came humbly because he has this incredible compassion. See, there is nothing in the history books that say mankind had to exist because mankind was so worthy to be created. Or even the pagans who believed that just two atoms collided together in molecular space and then somehow created a human being with our complex genetic makeup, nervous system, physiological system and everything. No. There's nothing that says we needed to exist or we were so good in and of ourselves that the universe created us out of nothing. No, only God creates out of nothing and only God created because why? Because he desired it. He desired us because he loves us. God has this incredible love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for us. He sent his son to earth to die on a cross for us so that he could fix the sin problem because folks, every single one of us has a huge sin problem. And God says, I've got a plan for that. I've got a rescue plan for that. And it involves my very son, another member of the Trinity, the long awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came in obedience in subservience to the father's will to be crucified on a cross for us so that he would take our sins penalty away. The sin, the sin problem, just one sin is worthy of your death. That you would not go to heaven, that you would not be with God forever because God cannot be where sin exists and sin is opposition to the most high. And God says, I've got a rescue plan because I love them so much. But because it is a love relationship, unless the other side reciprocates, it's not love. It's not a relationship. Yes, God can still love us, but unless we love him, it's not a relationship because a relationship is two ways. It's two people. It's two parties. And it must be two parties or it's not a relationship. By definition. And God says, I love them so much. 
I'm going to provide a way that their sins can be forgiven and I can be with them. They can be with me forever. Because I love them so much. This is God's great compassion for you. This is God's extravagant compassion for you. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That means so mankind is without excuse. That whether mankind acknowledges God or not, whether mankind chooses to give glory to God, the creator, or not, they're without excuse. Because it has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And God still has compassion on men. And God still has patience on men. There's a passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. This is at, at the, almost at the very end of the book of 2 Chronicles. Starting at verse 15, this speaks of how the people of Israel responded to the kings and to the prophets. Verse 15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, that is Jerusalem, that is with his people. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. See, folks, God has an incredible compassion. God has an incredible patience. God has incredible mercy and forgiveness. But in God's patience, there is a limit. In God's patience for man and mankind's mind and his heart and what he chooses over and over and over and over again, there is a limit. Because the good God is also just. Because the compassionate God also is about righteousness and holiness and purity. Therefore, if man runs from God over and over and over and over and over again, over years and over decades, God has a limit. Because God is just, because God is the judge, because God believes in holiness. This is who he is. God is holy. He dwells in holiness. And this is what he has for man. And he knows this is how you will feel most fulfilled. This is what will bring you the greatest joy in life is holiness with him. If you live by the way that God defines life, do 
Do you want to have a good life and a righteous life and a joy-filled life? Then find your fulfillment in me and in my law and in my commandments. God says over and over and over again, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, essentially, you will show mercy. You will show compassion. You will live a lifestyle of forgiveness toward other people. One of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Jesus says 70 times, not seven times, 70 times seven. And as a child, I thought, oh, 490 times. And then I learned more about biblical numbers. And this is an example. Jesus is saying, without number, you must live a lifestyle of forgiveness toward other people because this is how God is for us. God doesn't just say, Bryce, you sinned again today. That's it. I'm cutting you off. That's it. You're my child, but that's it. No. Praise God he doesn't do that. God's forgiveness is to a level unmatched in this world. It's to a, to a level that I don't even understand in this world because it's so good. Because it's so miraculous. Because God operates in holiness outside of time. Outside of the constraints that we know here on earth because God dwells in eternity and he is omnipresent and he is omnipotent and he is omniscient. And God has this incredible love and forgiveness. There's a passage in Luke 10. You're familiar with it, I'm quite sure, starting in verse 25. I'll read it for you. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, that would be of the Levitical line, the priestly line. But a Samaritan, who was seen as an outsider to the Jews, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
And the man said to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is an extravagant love. This is an extravagant show of grace and of mercy, an extravagant compassion. God's love doesn't know any bounds. God uses the example that a priest was going down the road. He doesn't give any attention to the man who's injured, lying in the ditch, was beat up by people who robbed him. And then a Levite from the tribe of Levi, which was also of the priestly line, passed by on the other side of the road, just like the priest had done. Didn't stop to help. And it wasn't but an outsider who shows extravagant love toward the man who was injured and lying in the ditch. And God, through Jesus, shares this story to this person in the crowd because he wants to illustrate that not only does God's love expound beyond the Jews, that God's gospel is coming to people outside of even the Jews, but that our mercy and our love and our compassion is to expound to expound outside of our thought process and those who, th- who we think are worthy. That our hearts should be stirred as God's heart is stirred. That our prayers should be covering the lives of people who we know are living in opposition to God. Governmental leaders who are causing so much destruction and so much hatred and so much discord and so much division and are acting in ways opposing God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. We need to be praying for our governmental leaders who are acting ungodly. Because we want people to repent and to worship God. I want to live a life that is repentant and worshipful to our God. God is wildly gracious and compassionate. It doesn't fit in the definition of man. It doesn't fit in the definition of our culture. It does not fit in tradition, or inside the box. Our creator works outside of the box. He will leave the flock of 99 to go find the one. Whether that's someone in the church or that's someone outside of the church. Jesus made a pattern of speaking and dining and drinking socially with the outcasts of society at his time. Why? Because he didn't care what the Pharisees had to say about what he was doing. These people knew they were quote-unquote sinners, where the Pharisees had issues with calling themselves sinners, and all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and need God's forgiveness. 
But these quote-unquote sinners from the streets, they would tell Jesus that they were sinners. And Jesus was illustrating, this I can work with, because the others won't even acknowledge their sin problem. You have to know that you're a sinner first, to know that you need to humble yourself before Almighty, Holy God. And our God is extremely loving and patient. He loves you so much and he wants to be close to you and he wants you to have the Father's heart and to desire that which the Father desires, to think as the Father thinks, to speak and to act as the Father speaks and acts. And it is in these traits that then we become our identity of in Christ, of Christ, that we become Christians in our living. And this is God's desire for us, that we would be of his commandments, that we would be of Christ, that our desire would be of God and the things of the kingdom of God and not of this world and the things of this world. And I want to close again with the passage in 2 Chronicles 36. I'll reread verses 15, 16, and then continue. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. But folks, that's not the end of the story. Continuing in verse 17, Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And that was as prophesied back in Leviticus. Verse 22, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. In multiple ways is this illustrative of our present day. I'm not saying it's an exact correlation. This was a historical moment in time. 
This was King Cyrus, this was the prophet Jeremiah, and this was God's temporary judgment against the people of Israel. But today our situations are dark. Our cultures and our nations are dark because they are not seeking the Lord. But the story is not over. God's great compassion and God's love is writing a story on the hearts of men which will have a testimony now and into eternity. And it's a powerful story. And God is doing something miraculous and something wondrous. And God is calling men from all nations to repent of their sin, to turn away from the world, to turn away from their sin, and to put their trust, their hope, and their love, and their faith in God alone. And then God says, you will be with me now and forever. Let's pray. Wondrous God of heaven and earth, the one who is writing your story, may you be glorified. May you be glorified in our mind and in our heart in our speech and in our actions, what we do with our bodies, God, may it bring glory to you. May we tune our minds and our hearts to think in a way that is so lavish in the eyes of the world that it doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. That we love people over and over and over again. That we show people forgiveness over and over and over again. That we're constantly reaching out to show other people the extents of God's love. That we are constantly reaching out and bringing to them the gospel of Jesus Christ to show them the extent of your love. Because we do not want to play by the world by the rules of the world, by the definitions of the world, but we are turning and trusting and hoping in you. By your Holy Spirit, O oh God, please do this in your children's hearts. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 21.